Hi everyone, welcome to the Poem Podcast. It's James Prescott here, your host. Um, yeah, I'm delighted to welcome back um, a good friend of mine. He's been on the podcast a couple of times, uh, Brandon Robinson. Welcome back. Hey there, it's so good to be back with you. Yeah. Good to see you virtually after seeing you in person just a week ago or so. Yes, it feels like a week ago, yeah. Uh, Brandon came to London a few weeks ago and we met up and had a long chat and um, in a little cafe in London. And, uh, yeah, um, Brandon um, is a pastor, he's an author, and an LGBT activist as well. Um, does a lot of work f- um for in, fighting for inclusion in the church, uh, a more inclusive church. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. He's got a book out, uh, another book. It's his second book this year, um, which is really exciting. You'll have heard us talk about his other one, um, Our Witness, which is which was a lot of stories from LGBT people all over the world. Um, and now we have True Inclusion, Creating Communities of Radical Embrace, which is... Um, yeah, it's it's a great book, and we're going to talk about it today. Um, so tell us what this book's about, Brandon. Yeah, totally. This is the first book that I've ever written that uh, wasn't my idea to write. So about two years ago, I was living in Denver, um, and my publisher, uh, Chalice Press, basically reached out and said, hey, we are looking for a resource that doesn't really exist yet. We're looking for some someone to write a book about what you do after a church becomes LGBT inclusive. Like, what what is the next step beyond LGBT inclusion? Mm. Um, and that was really the only prompt they had. And so I sat down with uh, the acquisitions editor, a wonderful woman named Deborah Arca, and I agreed to write this book and then started on the journey. And um, my life changed pretty dramatically over the year and a half, two years that I started writing this because at the time I was just finishing up seminary in Denver, Colorado. Um, and then I accepted a call to be the pastor of a church here in San Diego, California. And so the first half of the book was written, um, and kind of reflects where I was at. Um, it's very mm-hmm. theoretical. I was looking at the theology, the psychology, the sociology behind inclusion and exclusion. I wanted to, um, Examined beyond just the LGBT issue, uh, what was the impact of exclusion on people in general? Uh, why was inclusion such an important uh, need and a desire for so many people? And then I became a pastor, and so mm. I had the mm. opportunity to take all of that theoretical um, yeah. content that I had built up and begin trying to implement it into a community. And so the second half of the book is kind of practical lessons mm. that I learned about what it looks like to create an inclusive church beyond LGBT issues, but also um, what it looks like to become a radically inclusive person and individual. So, yeah, that's basically the foundation of this book. Um, when I read it, I yeah, I found it was such... I found it was a book that could be read by all sorts of people um, coming from different perspectives. Like, it could be read... Like, it's a great book for allies, um, for example, to gain more understanding and insight and like you say the practical stuff in the book is really really good um it's a good book for pastors really good book for pastors um for obvious reasons and just just for people who want to understand more about 
LGBT inclusion generally. Um, yeah. I think it's a it's it's a really really good resource. Um, so it covers a yeah. lot of stuff. This book. I want to just touch on a few few things that you talk about in the book. I think um, without actually going actually rewrite telling us what's in the book. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, that that struck me when I read it was how churches have tried to be inclusive. Um, but kind of all churches that call themselves inclusive but actually really aren't inclusive um, sure. you know churches which have like the rainbow banner and all this kind of thing and and then they say that because they've got and one thing that actually struck me um, was churches saying we've got LGBT people in our community as a way of saying we're inclusive yeah. um, so just unpack some of that for us yeah, I mean, that again, the book kind of starts with these two audiences of people, or at least I was trying to address two particular groups of people. Yeah. Um, one, the group of churches and individuals who aren't actually all that inclusive. They still have an exclusive theology, but say things like, all are welcome, or say things like, oh, look, we have LGBT people in our church, so we are inclusive. Um and then the other group was the people, and it's kind of ironic that sitting in front of me is a, a rainbow Bible, um, <laughs> things like that, who have, like, the outward symbols and might actually have an inclusive theology around LGBT people, which is mm. great. But for them, the question is, how do we begin including more minorities, more marginalized people beyond the LGBT community? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that first group... I think is in particular a really dangerous group, honestly. Um, there's an organization that started here in the U.S. called Church Clarity that has been really helping um, expose churches that claim and use the words inclusive or welcome um, as marketing tools. But when you as an LGBT person or when you as a person of color or when you as a woman show up and desire to use your gifts or your callings in that community, all of a sudden you find that they're not actually all that inclusive. They say, well, women can't be in leadership or LGBT people shouldn't, um, until they repent of their sin or live a celibate life, shouldn't be in leadership at our church. That's actually a psychologically damaging um, mm. experience for people mm. who trust a community, who believe that this community loves them and supports them, and then finds out they've been tricked. Um, and so I kind of go pretty aggressively in a couple different points at that kind of uh, inclusive church and say, mm. your inclusion isn't real. Um, and I think that needs to be called out and named. Um, and then for the other side of the coin, I've actually, in a the first reviews that have come out about the book this week, there's been a couple people that have uh, expressed surprise that me as somebody who's an LGBT activist, who's focused so much time on LGBT topics, um, actually, in this book, intentionally call out um, churches that are just LGBT inclusive and call them to keep doing more work. So in the book, I talk about um, a time that I walked into a church that I was invited to speak in, and they had a giant rainbow Jesus uh, mm. on the platform. And when I got up to preach, I looked out and saw mm -hmm. that the congregation was primarily white gay men. And I realized, even though they had all this outward symbolism, and even though their congregation had one particular group of minorities included, their inclusion, it was a half-understood inclusion. It didn't continue beyond 
this one demographic of people. And that's really problematic. The gay community, the LGBT community needs to continually be reaching out to help liberate other people. And that's in the book. I talk about that as intersectionality, like true yeah, justice yeah. must be intersectional. So, Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's amazing that these things happen as well. I, there's such ignorance around this subject by people who probably should know better because... <clears throat> If I'm honest, pastors should know better, for sure. Um, yeah. Pastors don't have any excuse. They're, they're educated, they're trained, you know, they have a job to do. It's, you know, it's an absolution of responsibility. Um, and they're called to higher standards, that's even in scripture. Like, you yeah. know, so um, they've got no excuse, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Um, yeah, and I guess it's a journey, isn't it, because... It's going to take a while before we really get to true inclusion um, completely, but we have to keep working for it. Um, totally. And the other thing that interested me in the book was the role of patriarchy in um, around this issue, because like you wouldn't have thought like on the on the, on the face of it, you wouldn't think or think you'd think patriarchy is against women, you know, uh, because it's uh, patriarchy is about. Basically, white men being the strongest, being in charge, being leaders, um, being the strongest gender, um, and heterosexual white men generally as well. Um, yeah. And um, it kind of oppresses women, basically. Um, but it also, like you talk about in the book, it oppresses the LGBT community as well. So uh, yeah. just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, for me, uh, this revelation about... Um the force and impact of patriarchy has probably been one of the biggest theological shifts um, in the past five years for me because I set out, I did my master's uh, degree, a master's in theology, yeah. focusing on um, gender and sexuality in the first century around Christianity. So I spent four years really digging into uh, the source manuscripts from the days that Christianity was first emerging as a religion and reading what people were talking about um, in relation to gender, in relation to sexuality. And what I discovered, um, mm. not only in the first century, but beyond in the Hebrew Bible, we find this, that this thing called patriarchy emerges, but it's not just, as you said, it's not just against women, which is what we commonly think of it as. Mm. Patriarchy is built on four pillars, and those pillars are the oppression of women, the oppression of uh, gender non-conforming people and sexual minorities. So particularly men who don't act like men, according to a certain cultural standard. Mm. That includes gay men and effeminate men, um, eunuchs in the Bible, so men who had their uh, private parts castrated. Um, mm. All of those people were seen as less than. It was also classist and racist, and so it was against... The patriarchy has always only been for upper-class men. Um, and if you were a slave, if you were somebody of a different ethnicity than the dominant culture, you were also oppressed. You were seen as less than a true man. And so you had these four pillars of race, uh, sexuality, gender identity, um, and class. And they created the system called patriarchy. And over the centuries, mm. uh, that dominant group who's been the oppressor has shifted a little bit. In certain cultures, it's not white men, clearly. Um, patriarchy exists in Africa, and it exists in Asia, and yeah. in different places. But it is always uh, cisgender men 
of the upper class in the dominant culture. Um, and once I identified that and saw that that was what patriarchy looked like, then you can begin to read how the early church, many people in the early church, viewed Jesus. And one thing, probably what I'm most proud about in this book, even though it's a short section, mm-hmm. uh, I really, I think the theology, the theo- theological section called the inclusion imperative in the book, mm-hmm. I yeah. felt most proud of that because it was uh, such an eye-opening revelation to me to find that Jesus was actually really um, focused on addressing, confronting, and deconstructing patriarchy. Um, and I would say that's probably one of his primary goals, and that was something I never heard in church. But when you begin to understand how patriarchy manifested in the New Testament and how mm. Jesus continually is challenging uh, those who have racial superiority, those who have gender superiority, those who have sexual sexual superiority, uh, he's launching a full-on assault to this patriarchal system. And if mm. we are called to be followers of him, um, I think there's a definite call to continue the work of assaulting the patriarchy, so to speak, deconstructing it. Because the other, the final thing I'll say is when the patriarchy gets dissolved, it will feel like loss to white, straight, cisgender, upper class men. Mm. But at the end of the day, they will actually find more liberation. We are all more liberated when the playing field becomes level than when mm. there's this hierarchy of dominance. Um, and I think in our Western world, we're beginning to taste little bits of what it looks like for the patriarchy to dissolve. And mm. it's chaotic right now, but if we look with clarity towards the future, I think we can see a more just and generous and equal world emerging um, if we just keep doing the work. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the weird thing is, you're right that you know, we're starting to see patriarchy being deconstructed, you know, um, starting to see that. And, you know, I'm, I've always been for gender equality, sexual equality, you know, inclusion, you know. Um, but even me, I, I notice in myself sometimes when this happens, I feel there's a little bit of uncomfortableness, you know. And that's just, that's, that is, what that is, is white male privilege, you know, what I've been brought up on something in my subconscious which is not not used to this so for people who don't hold the inclusive views that i have and that you have um who are white men it's going to be even more difficult yeah and i think and i'll just say and this might be an unpopular opinion but i think it's actually emerging more and more from some of the leaders of the intersectional movements in the u.s and in the uk right now is that we do need to have a little bit of empathy for uh, the white man who is losing privilege because yes, just imagine the deconstruction of the world as you've known it for centuries. I mean, it's it's a scary moment. It doesn't mean that uh, we should legitimize. Uh, they're not actually becoming a new oppressed class, which is something that I hear sometimes. But mm. uh, there is, especially pastorally, I have to walk with my congregation, the straight white men in my congregation, with a sense of empathy, saying, yes, I get that this feels scary, I get that this feels like loss, but here is actually what's happening, here's the new world that's emerging, and um, once people catch a vision of what's actually happening versus what it feels like in the moment of fear, I think you'll see a lot more white straight men um, being champions of the deconstruction of patriarchy. But uh, 
I do think there's a degree of empathy and uh, generosity we need to have to the people who, for the first time in 2,000 years, are having a system that has supported them completely fall apart. So, Hmm. again, could be an unpopular opinion, but pastorally, I think it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true, because, you know, they're not bad people. I think we have to be careful that people who believe in patriarchy aren't necessarily bad people. You know, there are some... There are some bad people who believe yep. in it and advocate for it, yep. but they are not everybody. There are, I know a lot of good people. I've got friends um, who are good people who love Jesus but believe in patriarchy. Um, and so do their wives. You know, and so we have to be really careful. You're right, because we have to... This is why, why it's all why I keep saying this to people. We have to be willing to listen to each other's stories rather than make pejorative binary statements yeah. you know because it's not black and white it's not that it's not it's not a binary thing we have to listen to people's stories okay. so the next kind of you, you said the book's in two parts and um the second part is more the practical side of this issue and dealing with it in a church context so like what have been the key lessons that you've learned being a pastor <laughs> Um, about creating a truly inclusive church? Yeah. Uh, for me, it's actually, it's, in one sense, it's less about um, lessons on how to do it well, per se. I think whenever you pursue being truly inclusive, it's going to be a, mm. a messy process. I think that was one of the things that I really learned first, is that there is no clean way uh, to just simply implement a program that's going to make mm. your church inclusive. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But what I actually did learn more of is what the impact of becoming a truly inclusive congregation looks like. Um, and a couple of the conclusions I came to surprised me and, um, and are kind of fundamentally against what a lot of denominations and churches uh, would hope for. And... Basically, they're all summed up in the idea that if you're going to become a radically inclusive church, you have to give up the desire to be the biggest church, to be the wealthiest church, to be um, to be a church that has a consistently growing core of people that are there for a long period of time. Um, I talk about in the book this idea of the revolving door. One of the things mm. that I first realized at Mission Gathering when I tried to implement my own version of true inclusion at our church was I could either focus on preaching a message that called people to conformity. Mm. And when you preach a message that calls people into conformity with a single idea of what it looks like to be a a Christian or Mm. a a healthy person, it's really easy to create cohesion in the community. You can create a community that wants to stick around um, and it becomes almost more like a social club than it does, I think, a, a church. And I would say most churches in the world today are communities of conformity, where you have a hundred or six thousand people that come together, uh, come together every Sunday, and they all kind of look the same, they believe the same things, they're in the same social brackets. Um, but I don't think that's what radical discipleship looks like. I don't think that's what following Jesus looks like, not to trash on a majority of churches. But if you're going to embrace true inclusion, I discovered that what you're actually going to find is that your church becomes more of a revolving door, meaning 
that people will come into your congregation from the highways and byways of life, people from the margins, will show up in your church, and they're looking for a place to connect, to rediscover faith, to rediscover God, to heal of their wounds and their traumas. And at Mission Gathering, at least, and I know from talking to other pastoral colleagues, we find that there's a high turnover rate. But if you actually talk to the people that leave the church, so to speak, they're not actually leaving the church because they've been hurt or that they're done with Christianity. But for a lot of people in our modern day, in 2018, Mm -hmm. um, organized religion isn't the best way for them to express spirituality. And so what you find is when people come in and get kind of healed and work Mm -hmm. through their traumas and develop a spirituality, once again, they move on. And they might figure out another kind of spiritual practice. Most often the people that leave uh, Mission Gathering, for instance, don't go to another church. Again, they're not disillusioned with the church anymore. Their spirituality just looks different. For a lot of people, uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, ethnic minorities, they rediscover a spirituality of their ancestry. So um, a couple months ago, I was with a group of young faith leaders at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And a majority of the group were people of color. And a majority of them came from Christian church backgrounds. But a majority of them now practice indigenous African spirituality that doesn't take place inside the church. Mm. Um, And for a lot of people, that might sound really scary. But I actually see that as a healthy, mature spirituality where people are being able to reclaim um, part of their identity and um, sanctify that in a way um, that has been, because for so many people, those indigenous identities has been uh, have been taken from them by patriarchy and colonization. Mm. So anyways, um, the big point is that as you become radically inclusive, you might have some people that stick around and really want to be a part of an inclusive Christian church. But I think more often than not, you're going to find people that come in, get healed, and walk away. And when that becomes okay... When that becomes something that we're accepting and encouraging and seeing as success because people's lives are being transformed, it fundamentally changes the way you do ministry. Um, mm. And yeah, I'll leave that there. And that is really interesting. I mean, that's that's something I found when I read the book that you know because you the churches I've been in in the past, it's been about like what you say, like find a core of people, get them to stick around get them involved and giving and serving and then have build around that, you know, and, you know, that, that sustains the church and it's just, you know, that ultimately, you know, and that's what, that's what's often happened. But this is a really interesting perspective. And I've actually seen it a lot myself. I've, I've got a lot of friends who have left the Christian church and they're not, they're not part of any, any minority group necessarily. Um, some of them are, but some of them aren't. Um, who've discovered a spirituality, a, a, and some of them a Christian spirituality, which doesn't necessarily fit within traditional church structures. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, the, the community that I'm part of now, I wouldn't call it a traditional church. You yeah. Know, because I don't think my my spirituality necessarily fits within a rigid structure anymore. It's yeah. it's wider and deeper and broader. And, um, and you know, there's some people I've got friends who can't go back to church because it's too painful. Even a good church is too painful for them. And, um, yeah. and we have to acknowledge 
this group of people. I think. Yeah, and I think part of part of this because I know I've already gotten pushback from uh, pastoral colleagues because it's not. It does in a like. I'm challenging the traditional model that has been church forever. And what I'm saying is that model will stay around. There will always be a group of people that want to meet regularly on Sundays and practice a traditional Christianity. And that's great. And I think that is the core of any church. So at Mission Gathering, we have a group of probably 40 or 50 people Mm. that I know will stick around our church for the next 10 years because that's what their spirituality is. But what this book really, what what I'm talking about with The Revolving Door is just the statement of what is already happening. Um, Mm. And it's a call to stop resisting it and instead embrace it. If you're doing it right, if if people are leaving your church because they are more healed and healthy and whole, that should be a sign of success. If people are leaving your church because you're hurting them... uh, with exclusive theology, um, that's not a sign of success. But I just want people, I want pastors in particular to reframe what it looks like when, I mean, again, I have so many young people my own age that come through our church, stay for a few months, hear a new kind of Christian perspective, and then move on. And I've had to talk to my own elders about why that's not a bad thing. These people, again, aren't leaving because we're doing something wrong as a church. They're leaving because we're doing something right as a church. They're being healed. They're being um, reconnected to God in a new way. Mm. And if we're going to be truly radically inclusive, we need to always be including more and more people and always freeing those people to express themselves however they desire, not calling them to commit to a community of conformity. Absolutely agree with that. I yeah, and this is a. I mean, this is this is a massive, a massive issue. It's it, you know it's because I hate to say it, but there's a lot of churches which kind of seem to exist to protect themselves and protect the institution, protect the establishment, protect you know, and they disguise it under theology and they disguise it under you know, commitment to to God. And, um, and I do think it's important that we have community and that we grow in community because that's how human beings generally grow. Um, but it doesn't have to look like the way it's always looked, you know, um, because that's just... It's already happening, so there's nothing we can do. You know, you can't change that, you know. Um, I heard Rob Bell say once that you, can't, you kind of got to build up the temple and then you've got to knock it down again. Yeah. Because like you have to have the you have to have the temple to kind of bring them in and kind of show them and set those boundaries. But then you've got to it's like the two halves of life that Richard Raw talks about. You need the structures, and then you need to kind of almost lose the structures yeah. and go out into the world. You know. And isn't that what Jesus did? He spent his life growing up in the institution, learning in the institution, preaching in the institution, and then he spends the second half of his life saying, "I'm going to destroy this temple." Um, mm, and he yeah. does destroy it. He speaks against it. Um, and so, I, yeah, it's that love. Maybe I shouldn't use the word love-hate relationship, but we we should acknowledge that spirituality looks like a, like you said, a period of institutionalization and then a period of deconstruction. And thinking about the community that you're a part of, for instance, um, mm. which is more of a contemplative gathering, mm. I would say in some senses uh, it's, 
I don't know if I want to use this word, but it's it's an authentic ancient English expression, I'll say, of spirituality um, in some senses. And yeah, in some ways. And in our community, we just started, um, I was telling you about it when I was with you, we just started yesterday or two days ago, our first contemplative gathering at Mission Gathering. Mm. And I think that for a number of our people, that expression, which is a unique cultural expression of what spirituality looks like, is going to become their new expression. And it's not the institutional church. And it will look different. But the revolving door idea is also a call to churches to begin thinking and empowering people within the institution to express spirituality differently beyond a Sunday morning church service. Um, Mm. Because for a lot of people, the Sunday morning church service is not a culturally authentic expression. It's not, um, it doesn't fit with our schedules. It doesn't, it, it is by nature an exclusive expression of Christian faith because you have to come at a certain time on a certain day and do certain practices. Um, and so I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but the call, the call of the book around this is simply to say, if we're going to be inclusive, we've got to be experimental. We've got to continually be rethinking and playing and trying new ways of expressing spirituality and not be afraid to tear down the temple, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. And it's exciting, you know, it's exciting. Um, some people would say it's scary and, you know, it probably is a little bit scary, but, you know, um, yeah, I, yeah I, I, in terms of my own journey, I now see, like, I'm beginning to, I've been reading Falling Upward again recently, so it's very much on my mind, this whole idea of the two halves of life, and I'm beginning to see my own life that way, you know, the... I've been in I've been in institutionalized church for forty years or so, which is all structure yeah. and everything. And now I'm kind of moving on from that, you know. Um, and whilst that is important in some ways, having that in place, having that experience, um, now I need to move forward and move on from that, you know. And a lot of people are like that. I've got a lot of friends like that, um, people younger than me, a lot younger than me, um, and. It's it's a exciting place to be because you don't know what's going to happen. It's a lot of lot of unexpected and unknown, which is a really good place to be because it means you're going to be open to growth. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, and there's one thing I really wanted to talk to you about the book as well. The bit at the end, I think it is the there's um yeah some some ten you list like ten different actions that churches should should take and embrace um, to um, stop that road becoming to becoming more inclusive um, I mean what what I mean like for people who are listening to this who want to want to help make that maybe they could be pastors or maybe they might, maybe they're not pastors but maybe they're just con- members of the congregation um what, what, what things, what, what actions do you think they should? What do you recommend? Little things, even that people can do to try and make their little community, um, or big community, but their community more, more inclusive. What can we individually do? Um, yes. And what can churches do? I think what I'll do for this is um, I'll share 
five of the ten. We'll leave five for them to pick up in the book. Uh, but <laughs> yes, good idea. This was actually so. This appendix, which is called uh, "Making True Inclusion Real in Your Context: Ten Suggested Actions," uh, was a suggestion of my publisher at the last minute. Uh, literally, maybe a month ago, I wrote this up, and what I did for this was I looked. I, at the, there's about five or six congregations um, in the U.S. and the U.K. that I see as like really embracing true inclusion. And I looked at them and I said, what are they doing? What sorts of tangible actions have they done that I've seen them do that has made them be an example of true inclusion? Um, mm. And so the first example I give is one that a church called Urban Village Church in Chicago put together. Mm. Um, and the first suggestion is, participate in regular community self-assessments and create an inclusion task force. And what I saw, what that means is Urban Village Church about two years ago, maybe three years ago, uh, publicly announced that they had hired an external body to come in um, and examine their church for white supremacy. Um, and that wow, sounds pretty yeah, radical. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But what it was was they simply hired, and there are tons of organizations that do this, and you can do it really organically. You can pick up assessments off the Internet um, that help you identify ways that you might be participating in structural racism as a church. Um, you can also do assessments around how you're acting homophobic or how you might be promoting Islamophobia as a church. Like There are various uh, assessments that diversity consultants have put together. Yeah. But I think if maybe once a year a church elder board agreed to sit down and take a real hard look at how they were functioning and the ways that they might be excluding people, um, I think what you're going to find is, one, a lot more minorities are going to trust and be willing to come to a church that is willing to own and identify the ways that they're promoting exclusion. And not hide from it, not deny it, but say, let's assess ourselves and figure it out and change. Um, and it's, again, this isn't a hard thing to do. If your church has resources, I would say hire an external source. That's always the best way because you have kind of a more objective approach. But yeah. if not, bring together a panel of people who are willing to examine everyone from the pastor to the processes of membership to how Sunday service is structured and say, how are we participating or perpetuating an exclusive structure? Mm. Um, the second tangible thing um, has become something that I've become really uh, passionate about. And it kind of dawned on me maybe about two years ago that I was with a lot of communities that talked about their desire to be a voice for the voiceless. So you had a lot of straight people wanting to talk about LGBT inclusion in their congregations. And on one hand, that's amazing. Great. We need that. But what's mm. more profound than being a voice for the voiceless is giving the voiceless back their voice. Uh, it's mm. platforming the voices of minorities in your congregation, letting them speak if they want to. Um, and I think you'll find most churches have minorities who would be more than willing to talk about their experience, to talk about ways that they think the church should change to be more inclusive, to be less racist, to be more um, friendly to other gender identities be besides the binary. Um, 
And so I just encourage communities to identify the minorities in their midst and ask them, would you like to speak on on behalf of your community? Would you like to share your experience? Would you like to have the opportunity to preach in our church um, so that we can hear theology from a perspective that's different than the Eurocentric theology that most churches preach? Um, again, we need allies, but I think the more helpful ally is not the one who's continually speaking on behalf of our community, but who's using their privilege, using their platform to say, here's a voice that needs to speak besides my own. Um, I think that's often the more profound and helpful way um, to create true inclusion. I, I, I agree completely, yeah. Yeah. Um, let me think. What are the next good ones? Um, <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, some of these are a little bit redundant, but I think they're, they're different aspects of the same conversation. Because um, one of the points I say is repent often and publicly. Um that kind of goes with that community assessment thing, but often communities, often pastors will slip up and make a mistake and do something that was unintentionally exclusive. Um, I've been called out on this more, more times than I care to admit in my own congregation about ways that I've been, um, I've promoted programs that can only be accessed by people of a certain socioeconomic bracket, or I've, done events at places that were not, and we weren't thinking about those who were differently abled, disabled, and handicapped. Um, when that kind of thing happens, the best thing to do as a pastor or as an individual or as a community is to say, yes, we've done that. We've done something wrong. We are sorry, and we are committing to change that. Um, most communities, mm. our natural impulse is to either be defensive and say, well, goodness, I'm sorry, I made this little mistake. Like, Or we try to hide that we made a mistake, and we try to cover up and say, no, 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 we just, we, we had some way for our event to be accessible, but you didn't know about it, or whatever. Uh, I get the impulse to save face as a, a public person, as a pastor, mm -hmm. or whatever. Uh, but what's more helpful is for our communities to see pastors in particular owning the ways we've messed up, for public figures, for bloggers, for whoever it is to say, I wrote an insensitive thing or I spoke an insensitive way. I'm sorry and I'm committing to change. Um, that just posture of repentance is something that isn't seen very often and is really important. Um, I'll do this as the last one. Um, I'll give you four ways instead of five. Because uh, <laughs> I think this one's also really important. And it's to be a community of consistent advocacy rather than a community of response. Um, yeah. And what I mean by this is, especially in the U.S., for instance, we have a lot of problems with mass shootings, for instance. And oftentimes a mass shooting will happen in the U.S. And the next day, progressive Christian Twitter will all be tweeting things like, if your pastor isn't going to preach about this gun violence on Sunday morning, then you should leave and fight another church. It's a great sentiment, right? It's saying, oh my gosh, something really terrible has happened. Our community needs to speak about it. That's great. But what's more helpful is if we are a community of consistent advocacy. So it's not your pastor needs to respond this Sunday. 
But how are we preaching messages every Sunday that are calling out systemic injustice and structural injustice? Yes. How are we consistently being communities of advocacy so that I don't have to, when there's another mass shooting, do a special Sunday service for that because our community knows that 365 days a year we're standing against gun violence and we are standing on behalf of transgender people, not just when a bathroom mm. bill gets put up in North Carolina. Yes, um, yes. Oh, yeah. so much yes to that. That is, you know, I have to confess that when people do that kind of tweet, and I know I've got friends, good people that I respect, who do that kind of tweet for the right reasons. Um, and I love the spirit behind it, you know, um, and, you know, the heart behind it. But I just feel like it's misguided. And it's also shaming and it's, you know, um, yeah, it's not, it's, it's counterproductive, I think. Yeah. And, like, what, and actually what we should be doing is being prophetic and actually speaking about these things when they're not a hot topic. Yeah. And just talking about them anyway. Like yeah. that, you know, I mean, there's, it always makes me laugh. There's, there's things going on in the world which are anti-Christ, you know, and they're going on right now. And I don't see any progressive tweet Christians talking about them anywhere. They're typically yeah. talking about Trump or, um, which is legitimate, by the way. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's legitimate reasons to talk about Trump. Um, but, they talking about some other things that are people already know about and are, um, you know, in the you know in the public domain already, and everyone knows about them, and everyone is talking about them, you know. And what we need, and one of the things I love about what you're doing is, like, prophetic voices who are speaking about issues that maybe aren't the hot topic, but which are really really important and need to be confronted. Um, yeah. You know. I think you hit the nail on the head by making a differentiation between the prophetic aspect there. Because here's uh, an unpopular opinion, but in our day, the progressive Christian movement is uh, big enough, and the progressive movement is big enough, that you're right, it's popular. It's, uh, it's actually socially, politically, financially expedient to talk about gun violence after a mass shooting. Because you'll get more retweets, you'll get more likes, people will come to your church if you make a big deal about it. But what's not popular is being that prophetic voice where you're speaking about that, calling out your own community and the issues in your own community, and speaking prophetically to them 365 days a year. If you're doing that, uh, we know the biblical narrative says that prophets are never welcome in their hometown, right? It's actually not popular, even among progressives, to be prophetic throughout the year. Um, and so it's almost a conscience check. I, again, I don't want to be shaming anybody because I do yes. think for most people who will preach about whatever the issue is after a major event, their heart is coming from the right place. But I'm just suggesting that what the more faithful position, what the more inclusive, um, Christ-centered uh, posture of doing ministry is, is to always be looking around and always have your eyes open at the injustice that surrounds you. Um, and so, again, not just preaching about things that are national issues, but preach about things that affect your own community, your own neighborhood. What's happening in North Park, my neighborhood here in San Diego? And how can I be speaking about that and calling for justice and calling for people to follow Jesus 
in this context, which isn't going to get me a lot of retweets or likes. Lots of people aren't going to read a blog about what's happening in North Park, San Diego. But that's actually the more inclusive, the more faithful, the more Christ-centered, the more impactful posture, I think. Um, mm. Yeah. No, I love that. Absolutely cannot agree more with that. So, um, yeah. So, everyone, go get this book, True Inclusion. Um, it's available right now. Anyway, you can get books. Um, it is well worth a read. It's, it won't... Um, if you're worried about reading long books, it's not it's not a long book. You can probably read it in about an hour. Um, and um, it's a very good read with lots of great content. And um, Brandon's fantastic. Brandon's a great writer. So um, I recommend everything that he's written. He's written about three books now, and um, they're all great. So thank you, Brandon, for coming on. Um, thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. So. Uh, and I appreciate your work and your witness from across that side of Atlantic, and I hope that we can get you over here sometime soon. Yes, so do I. I hope that we can make that possible. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah so um, we'll have you back on the podcast again, I'm sure. So um, take care, everyone, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>